Well, good evening, family. How is everybody? Sammy, we didn't burn it down while you were gone. <laughs> we, we, we did good. And I am so sorry I didn't get to see your testimony this morning. I was outside Garden Place, and they said it was just wonderful to witness. Christy was telling me about it, and I just, I really hate it. I'm going to go back and listen to that for sure, for sure. Um, many people were blessed by it. I know that I heard them say that. So, good morning. Um, I hope this is going to be a good afternoon. Um, when you were here last time, or last Sunday, obviously I did my testimony. Um, I think that was a record time for a testimony. I mean, it was right on the nose. I, I had never done that before. I generally go over, and I'm really going to fight to do that, not to do that tonight. Um, but that I haven't done my testimony in many years, and that was that, I was more scared and worried about that than I was anything else moving forward. Um, <clears throat> because it's personal, you know, it, it's personal. It, it, it's, it can be rough re- reliving the past sometimes, but I think it's important to do and let other people see what you've been through and what you have overcome. And it not only gives people encouragement, hope, and faith, it just it shows, you know, don't give up. Don't, don't quit, you know, and that's, that's just real important to have our testimony shown. And um, really interestingly, the best testimony I ever heard in my life, and I'm, I'm going to name drop him, it was uh, Michael Mason out at Southside. And he kept saying over and over and over and over again, my testimony's boring, I didn't have this interest in life, this, that, and the other. I was raised up in church, my dad took me to church, and I knew I was a sinner at, I think he said, 10 or 11 years old, and I got saved, and that was the end of the story. And I come up to him afterwards, and I said, I never want to hear you say that's the worst testimony ever. In my view, that's the best testimony ever. That a child was raised by, in a loving home by loving parents that love God, and they went the way with God. That's a testimony you want. That's a testimony you want to hear. Now, don't be discouraged by what I said if you have gone through things and God has pulled you out of that. That's courage, that's strength. But that, there's another courage and strength to be faithful all your life and loyal to God all your life and be a Christian. That, that to me, is very admirable. That's the hardest thing to do. That is one of the hardest things to do. So... Enough of that. Um, I'm glad to see everybody here tonight. Um, tonight, what we're going to do is going to be, who likes history? Anybody? All right. We got some history buffs here. We're going to go through a little history. And why this is important, you may be asking yourself, why are we going to learn about Jehovah's Witnesses and what they think and do and believe? It's like I was talking to my friend here. In the military, we studied our enemy. You best know how to combat your enemy. I'm not saying the people that are Jehovah's Witnesses are enemies. I'm saying the Watchtower organization, the society that propagates this theology and puts this on the followers of you know, Jehovah's Witnesses that they share. Because the average Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door, they believe what they believe. They are sincere about what they believe. But what did we speak about the last Sunday I was here? Just because you're sincere about something doesn't mean it's true. Just because you're sincere about anything doesn't mean that it's true. Like, look at Muslims that fly planes into towers. They're sincere about what they believe. Does it make it true? No, it doesn't. As Brother Sammy has elaborated for weeks and weeks and weeks, objective truth. 
We have to see what is objectively true. Is Christianity true? Or what the witnesses propagate true? They both can't be true because they contradict one another. So we have to find what the truth is. And all of this is an endeavor to get that Jehovah Witnesses come into your door, love on them, share the truth with them, and maybe put a stone in their shoe. And what I mean by that, I want them to lay awake at night and wrestle with what you told them. I want that to be a, that's a good thing, that they lay there at night and they wonder about the things that you said and the things that you brought up. That's what I'm encouraging you to bolster your, your courage and your faith to be able to do. So, getting on into this, <clears throat> now I'm going to be moving at a cyclic rate. Tell me to slow down if you have to. Um, I got some ground to cover, but um, I think we're going to make it work. Has anybody in here ever heard the term Arianism? And this is not, you know, Arian Brotherhood. It's not, you know, uh, the skinhead thing. This is, this is a belief system that dates back all the way to 1st, 2nd, 3rd century. Anybody? Nope. Well, you have, and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Arianism is this idea that Jesus is not equal to the Father by nature, but he is the first creation of God. The founder of Arianism was no other than Arius. <clears throat> Excuse me who died in uh, 336. His ideas would have a tremendous impact on the early church by causing it to define orthodoxy with a number of creeds. However, his impact continues to this present day with such groups as the Jehovah's Witnesses. As a result of their conviction, these modern-day Arians produce a number of biblical arguments to support their contention that Jesus is not God. Though Arianism is false biblically, its doctrines have forced the church throughout all generations to define what she believes regarding the person and nature of Christ. So that's a pretty big deal. This same theology that, that these folks have started way back. This is nothing new. This isn't brand new. This isn't something that's come in the scope of 100 years. This is centuries old. And <clears throat> it was such a problem that the church fathers had to come together at Nicaea. The council, have you ever heard of the Council of Nicaea? Was in regard to this very thing. It really put the church on its heels, and they had to come together and start connecting dots throughout Scripture to show the Trinitarian nature of God. Now, you have to understand something. Gentiles didn't, they didn't have the New Testament in the first century. When, when Jesus ascended, the New Testament wasn't there. The New Testament, somebody wasn't walking around following Peter and writing down what he was doing. That's not how this went. This was some, <clears throat> by the temple period or, or 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, this is in and around the time. Scholars date it anywhere from 50 to 60, 70 years after the death of Christ that we start getting the autographs or the manuscripts of the New Testament. You think, wow, that's a long time. Really not. That's really, really close source material. Alexander the Great, the earliest documented works and writings we have of his life are 400 years after his death. But nobody questions whether Alexander the Great existed or not. You see? So the writings of the apostles and of the gospels are relatively close to the time of the resurrection. 
So what happened was is you have the Gentiles coming into the fray now, and a lot of them are Greek, have Greek mythology and all the, you know, different um, worldviews. I know you've heard the term Gnostic, the Gnostics, who infiltrated the church. Well, oddly enough, the Gnostics was sort of a melding of Greek mythology and Christian theology. And you look at the books of 1 John, 2 John, that's really dealing with the Gnostics that have come and infiltrated. What was one of the chief things that the Gnostics believed? They didn't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, that it was a spiritual resurrection. Well, guess who believes the same thing? Jehovah's Witnesses do. So you see kind of where this has germinated over the years with, with the establishment of the church in the first century. Um, the founder of Arianism was no other than Arius. He studied under uh, Lucian of Antioch, who saw Jesus as a semi-divine intermediate being. In fact, Lucian thought the Logos was not fully God or man. Therefore, Jesus has a high status among the creatures, even being called the firstborn of all creation, from Colossians 1. Jesus is supernatural, but he is not equal to the Father, Brown states. Brown states, and this is um, a quote from... Um, no, I'm thinking of Bruce Metzger. Sorry, that's my fault. Um, Brown, I can't really... I don't know who Brown is. Let's see. Doesn't matter. Brown states, Arianism developed the idea that the Son is a semi-divine being created, not begotten, by the Father, and having an origin in time, or at least a, de a definite beginning before the creation of the material world. Arius would later receive his ordination as a... Prebister in Alexandria in 311, he had many friends in high places, including a few in Asian bishops who tolerated his ideas. As a result of the spread of his teaching, Arius received opposition from some of his opponents. One of these opponents was Bishop Alexander. He argued that Jesus was the same substance with the Father. The contrasting party was known as the, I can't even say that word, um, they believed that Jesus was similar to substance with the Father. As a result of this disagreement, there was great controversy among the various local churches. This arguing would convince Constantine to call the Council of Nicaea. So you see, from the get-go, this is problematic already, this, this idea. And I'm going to unpack that a lot more for you as we go along. Trust me, I'm going to feed you baby birds. Don't worry, I will tell you. And if you have questions... You have questions, write them down. Let me go ahead and say that, because we're going to have a Q&A session on this one the last Sunday night, and I will cover all your questions that you have. So, getting into this, we covered what Arianism is from Arius. Council of Nicaea was gathered to combat this idea and this ideology of Jesus of not being God. <clears throat> so, we're going to fast forward to the late 1800s. There was a fellow named Charles Taze Russell. Basically, Russell, he had ties to, um, he, he visited several churches as a young man. He, he was on a quest to find truth, which is not bad, but ultimately he fell into this, Arian, this Arianism camp. And he, he was associated with the Seven-Day Adventist for a while. Um, there's some, you know, some 
Some say that he was a seven-day Adventist. Some say that he, he was just affiliated with. Either way, he drew a lot from, from that denomination. And um, basically, since then, since its inception of the Watchtower and the organization, which was started by Russell, they have grown, I think they're eight million now, eight million strong in the world. A lot of people think there's a lot more witnesses than there actually are. Um, it's just because they make a lot of noise. They're really loud about what they do. Who, who here has had a witness knock on their door? Raise a hand. Everybody. There ain't, but probably, I don't want to lie to you. I'll take a stab here. Mom, you can help me. There probably isn't 70 in this community, right? Would you say? I think 100 would be pushing it, but... Anywhere from 70 to 80, probably, regular attendance of, of witnesses. So there ain't, there ain't a, a lot of them like a lot of people think there are. They're just very busy. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to break down basic beliefs, doctrines, and I'm not going to try to chase rabbits here because I think it's important that you know what they believe, that when they come to your door and they come into your house and you understand them on a basic level, but the three points that we're going to look at next Sunday is what we really, really, really want to define when we're sitting and talking to a witness. We don't want to get lost in the birthdays and the blood and all that. It's interesting, and it needs to be. You need to know it, but don't let that be a point of contention. Don't, let, don't die on that hill, as it were. It's not worth it. Because just as I was speaking earlier, if a Christian for some reason, decided not to celebrate his birthday. That's okay. You're free to do that. I think it's a little weird, but, you know, you can, sell it. you can choose not to celebrate your birthday if you feel convicted over that. Christmas as well. I think that's even weirder, being a Christian, not celebrating Christmas, but if you felt conviction over that, more power to you. It's not a salvific thing. It's not something that you're going to lose your salvation over because you don't celebrate Christmas. Wouldn't you agree? That's not, how are we saved? Calling upon the name of Jesus. Trusting and being loyal to him, right? That's how one is saved. Didn't say anything about wor or celebrating Christmas. I'm not worried about that. That's not, that's not my point of contention. So, let's, let's go over, and we're going to start with the, mo the most... I say the basic thing, that is God's name to them. In the Old Testament, which is found at Psalm 83, 18, and it says basically that men may know that you, Jehovah, are most high over all the earth. They use the name Jehovah, and like I said, they're not Trinitarian. They believe Jehovah is singular in his being, and that is his true name, Jehovah. And as we know, God has many names. God, God can go by many names. But if we want to get technical, God's true name is Yahweh. Yahweh is the true name of God. And Jehovah, you can use it. There's nothing wrong with using Jehovah, albeit it is a hybrid name of Latin and Spanish and some joining of Adonai and Yahweh meshing and melding, you come out with Jehovah. It's a, something I just don't really want to spend the time on to show you. 
There's nothing wrong with using Jehovah, but they, they hold that name as the one and only true name. And it's interesting to note, too, that <clears throat> the name Jehovah is not found anywhere in the New Testament, but for the witnesses, I believe they've put it in, in the New Testament of their Bible 238 times they've included it. Many times putting it where Lord is at or where Jesus is even at, they, they apply Jehovah there. Um, they don't call church, church. They don't go to church. They go to the kingdom hall. Everybody know, should know what a kingdom hall is. You've probably seen it. They attend the kingdom hall three times a week. Generally, it's similar to what we do here um, Sunday morning. They don't have a Sunday school. They go in and they will do, it'll be a two-hour deal. They do uh, singing and praises just like we do. Um, songs written and composed by the society themselves. Uh, Kingdom Melodies is what it's called. And then we go into our Bible talk, or we would. <clears throat> I'm acting like I'm still a witness. Um, then it would go into the Watchtower study on Sundays, right after following after um, the Bible talk. Now, granted, the Watchtowers and Awakes, I'm sure you all know what that is, the publications they stick in the door or they give to you when they come to the door. Um, they will study the Watchtower, <clears throat> and they have, I think it comes every two or three weeks or something that you get a new one every month. I can't rightly remember. But either way, that they study that, and um, all the talks that they give, the Bible talks that they do beforehand are outlined, brought down from the society, from the organization, the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society. That all means the same thing. Watchtower and Bible Tract Society, organization, society, they all mean the same thing, so you know. They will outline, and an elder will give the talk and do that, and then after our Watchtower study, another hour of that, we, we're done for the day. We're done on Sunday. There's no Sunday evening service. Um, <clears throat> and when I was going, it was either you, they swap it up. You go Tuesday and Thursdays, Tuesday and Thursday night, or Monday and Wednesday night. Well, Monday nights, generally, they will do a book study, and they'll have small groups and go to a home. If you're, if you're located in this area, they'll congregate at this house. Some will go to the Kingdom Hall. And then, whether it's Wednesday or Thursday, the next meeting will be... And that's what they call church or whatever, meetings. They go to their meetings. Um, <clears throat> they will do the theocratic ministry school. And this was my favorite part because everyone that was there, you got picked. You're in a row. You're, in, you're numbered, basically. And it may be, Jason, you got a talk coming up in two weeks. And you had to prepare for it. You had your outline, whatever, and you got up there. And not only that, the elder, there be an elder sitting about where Brother Sammy's at, and he's grading you on your performance. And everybody did this. The Theocratic Ministry School was literally a school to teach them how to go out and go to your door and convert you. That's what it's for. Now, you think, wow, honestly, I don't think that's a bad idea. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that we could stand to do more on hands of learning of how to engage our culture. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think um, it requires rolling up sleeves and going to work. That's what it requires. 
We got to do the same thing. We got to roll our sleeves up and get to work. We have to. Because things like this are just going to keep happening. I mean, they're still converting people. Um, Elder arrangement. There is no pastor or preacher who is paid. The congregation has a body, um, body of elders, and then they have one that is a presiding elder, kind of like their spokesman, so to speak. He, he's over this, this area, and, you know, he's, he's kind of the, the lead honcho. Um, and again, talking about organization, where they get this idea of organization or the organization or the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society is from Matthew 24, 45. Faithful and discreet slave. The witnesses literally believe that the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the headquarters, is the faithful and discreet slave, the only conduit in which information from Jehovah is given and then parsed out to everybody else. That's how they believe. That the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is not wrong. They are infallible. They cannot make mistakes. Cannot. As we go along, I'm going to show you some of those mistakes that have been made. It's the only source of light and truth directed by God's Holy Spirit in the world. Every other religion or Christian denomination is a false religion or false prophet. To further solidify the society's role in a witness life, here's a following quote. We need to obey the faithful and discreet slave, the society, to have Jehovah's approval. That should strike you right there. That should tell you a lot, that you have to gain Jehovah's approval. That should send a red flag, number one, right there. As I've already said before, and some of you probably, this is probably how you know witnesses, some of you, especially if you're in the medical field. No blood transfusions. Have y'all ever heard that before? They will not accept blood transfusions. I could get into the numbers of how many have died. It's not worth it. Again, it's going to sound crazy. And I believe it is, but this is the truth. And I'm always going to tell you the truth. If I have a fellow brother or sister in Christ that are convicted that they should not get a blood transfusion, I can't make that choice for you. I can minister to you and say, I think it's in your best interest to get a blood transfusion because technically it ain't no different than getting an organ transplant, medically, scientifically. And of course, there's nothing in Scripture that says you can't get a blood transfusion. Nothing at all. And we will, I can elaborate on, if you ask me that question on night four, I'll elaborate that more for you. But if a Christian decides not to get a blood transfusion, that's your own prerogative. You know, I can't make that decision for you. I think it's a little crazy, but that's your conviction. Who am I to say, you know, I can minister you? Like I said, I can minister and try to show you, hey, it's probably in your best interest to do this. The only problem I have, and this is the problem that I have with society, is that they, they propagate that their followers do not. You're forcing that onto someone else as an ultimatum. You cannot get a blood transfusion or you will be shunned from Jehovah's organization. It's happened. It's sad, but it's happened. That's what I have a problem with. But, again, I'm not going to chase that rabbit when I'm talking to a Jehovah's Witness. The next thing that you probably have heard about them, 
They don't celebrate holidays, national holidays, or birthdays. Nationalism is forbidden, no serving in the armed forces, even civilian contract work is forbidden. No voting or political involvement, even saluting the flag. Um, the reasons why is um, several reasons, especially with holidays and birthdays, they, they chalk it up to paganism. They're not necessarily wrong that there is pagan ties to pretty much all the holidays that we do. Does that mean that we're worshiping pagans? Well, no. That's a genetic fallacy. That is a philosophical fallacy that you equate something just because some, somebody in the past done something bad with it or surrounding it, that means that's what you're doing. No. For instance, let me give you an example of that. You see a Middle Eastern person walk in here and has on the Middle Eastern garb, and you say, that person is, a middle, is from the Middle East. Terrorists come from the Middle East, therefore he's a terrorist. That's the same equation. That's that, well, pagans used to use that, and they meant it for this, and, you know, that's bad. So obviously when you're doing that, you're doing bad. That's not how it works. Let's take Christmas, for example. <clears throat> yeah, it has, you know, Saturnalia. You know, there, there's certain pagan roots surrounding it and involving it, but what do we celebrate it for? What have we, we don't celebrate it for those pagan deities. We celebrate it for the one true God. He has supplanted that holiday, and it's all about him now. It's all about the risen Savior, or a, bo a Savior born to us. You get it? You understand? So, but even so, if a Christian felt the need not to celebrate birthdays, you know, I'm not going to get mad at you for that. I think it's a little weird, but, you know, that's your freedom in Christ. That's your prerogative. Um, moving on, must do the door-to-door -door preaching work, which is called field service. This is where they come out and they knock on your door and they want to talk about the Bible with you and all that good stuff. They actually, they call it field service. Um, they do not believe in the Trinity. We've, we've talked about that a time or two. They believe Jehovah, the God, Jehovah God is the Father, and he is sovereign and creator alone. Jesus is his son, the first creation ever. Before anything else, Jesus was made first. And he was the ransom sacrifice. This is, this is what they say. He was the ransom sacrifice for the sin that Adam brought into the world. I need you to hang on to that. I need you to put a pin in that one because we're going to revisit that because this is a biggie. This is, this is, where, this is the hill that I'm going to die on, and you're going to see that next Sunday. <clears throat> Let's see. And basically, Jesus is the rightful king that will rule Jehovah God's kingdom for him. The Holy Spirit, can't leave him out. He is just pretty much this force. There's no person behind it. There's no nothing behind it. It's just God's inanimate force that he uses to get things done. It's kind of like magic. It, it, Star Wars force. It's, it's kind of like what it is. Ironically, you know who else believes the same thing? Muslims. They believe from Revelation 7 and 14, only 144,000 will go to heaven. You remember I told you I need you to get this out of your head of when they say heaven, paradise, bliss, eternity, all these things, they're not thinking the same thing you and I are thinking. 
majority of Jehovah's Witnesses will live on a refurbished paradise earth. This earth. Not a new earth. This earth. And only 144,000 of the, of the witnesses will go to heaven and rule as kings, priests, and judges with Christ. I can't, I don't have the time to sit here and tell you how grossly wrong that interpretation of those two scriptures are. I do not have the time. But let me just tell you, that's talking about Jews. That's the context of it. It has nothing to do, nothing to do with any of us. It's all concerning God's chosen people. Um... Basically, though, that is the driving message that they preach, their good news, essentially. That's their gospel, this paradise earth. That's what they want you to go into. Um, they don't believe in hell. That man is destined to the grave for being an unrepentant sinner, and that any that die before Armageddon will be resurrected to a paradise. Now, you need to really hang on to this one. Put a pen in this one. And that any that die... Anybody that dies before Armageddon will be resurrected to a paradise earth for a second chance to prove themselves to Jehovah during the millennial reign. I need you to marinate on that for a second. That's, that's really, this is the hill of hills that I will die on here. They're basically saying this, and I'll leave it with you. We pay for our own sins. That's what they believe. So your next question should be, what was the point of Jesus? I mean, if I can pay for it, why do I need him? If I can handle it, why do I need anybody else? Hang on to that. We're going we're gonna to unpack that a lot more. They believe in uh, what is called soul sleep. This means that once you die, you cease to exist, that you're buried, you decompose, and that's that. That the living person is actually a soul. That the soul that is sinning, it itself will die. And when, when you die, that is all that happens. You return to the earth. You're, go, you're not going to be with the Lord. Clearly, as Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians um, 5.8, absent from the body is present with the Lord. There's one contradiction. And there's many, many more. Don't believe, they don't believe that Christ died on a cross, but an upright pole or a torture stake. You may have heard this before. <clears throat> You know, really, in that, in that point, what does it matter what he died on? Really, when you get down to it, it's the fact that he died for the sins of the world. He died an excruciating death, whether it was an upright pole or a cross. It is a cross. I mean, it, there's no doubt about it. Scripture shows it. History shows it. Medical Experts will tell you that, that, you know, it's documented. The Romans used crosses as a form of torture, and it's excruciating. But either way, this is a point of contention for them. They, they really, they harp on that. They don't believe in being saved, that baptism and constant servitude to Jehovah is the only means of salvation. Even though it's not a promise, but only a hope that you might be worthy enough. Could you imagine living your life that way? Could you imagine coming to church and thinking the whole time? I need y'all to understand this. And I know y'all have been in church way longer than me. I know it. And I, you probably, you know, I've been doing this my whole life. 
I'm just wanting to give you an outsider's perspective on that. You've never had to worry about your assurance. You might have wondered, am I really saved? You might, everybody, everybody's done that. You know, I, I think that's fair to say, Brother Sammy. I, I think everybody has had that question, am I really saved? I can assure you that when Jesus says, it is finished, it is done. I don't question. He rose from the dead. I'm going to believe anything he says. That man rose, he raised himself from the dead. I think I'm going to listen to everything he says. He's got my full, undivided attention. And he says, you are mine. If you trust in me, you are mine. And there's nothing that's going to change that. He's not looking for what you can give to him. He's not looking for this merit system of, oh, well, you did this, you did that. Well, you come up short. That's not how it works. When I realize that I'm broken and I'm still broken and I'm constantly being repaired, constantly being fixed, constantly being sanctified, I don't think that's ever going to end. Even in, even in glory. I honestly believe... I, as a person, am going to grow, and I'm going to learn, and I'm going to glean off the Eternal Father forever. And He's never going to run out. He's so big, and He's so grand, and He's so massive. And I know I'm getting off topic here, but I just have to express, when I come into Christianity, the grandeur of God. How big He really is. He was in this little box for me as a witness, when I discovered Christianity and I realized Jesus was God, I saw him in everything. Like, I, he has his thumbprint on everything. That's how I viewed it. And just the grandeur of God. It's just, it's indescribable. Prophetic dates. <clears throat> and now I'll probably, on the Q&A, I will share a little more. And if, hopefully for time's sake, um, I might can do it tonight. Um, you know what? Actually, I am going to. I'm actually, and I think I left my Bible down here. I did. Look at me. I'm prepared. That's points off, Brother Sammy. I'm doing that theocratic ministry school. You got to, you got to, you got to point, you got to give me my points on that. Um, you got your Bible. Go ahead and flip over to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. If I can find it. If you don't have it, just listen along. Side note, this was my mother's, sitting right over there. This was her New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, 1979. 71, sorry. 70s. I wasn't even thought of. And... I know it's a witness's pen Bible, but it's near and dear to me. I mean, I, I still can teach the gospel out of this, this translation. It's a terrible translation, but it's still there. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm just very partial to this because there's just a lot of history with me. This is what I learned out of. This is what I learned their theology out of, and... It's just something I can never part with. You know, it's just, I know, I know it may seem weird, but 
I'll always hold on to this Bible for some reason. And it's been an effective tool in helping teach. Deuteronomy 18, let's look at verses 20 through 22. And it's going to sound really wooden from this translation, but you'll get the picture. However, the prophet who presumes to speak in my name, Jehovah, a word that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. And in case you should say in your heart, how shall we know the word that Jehovah has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of Jehovah and the word does not occur or come true, that is the word that Jehovah did not speak. With presumptuous, the prophet spoke it. You must not get frightened at him. Okay. So basically those set of verses tells us that anybody that prophesies in the name of Jehovah, if it don't come to pass, what does that mean? It's false. They have 100% failure rate at prophecy. Starting at 1879, the big date's 1914. What happened in 1914? No, I'm talking about world events. World War I. That was a perfect segue for him to say, see, the world, Charles Taze Russell, say, see, the world's coming to an end, Armageddon's here soon, we're about to go. And that's oddly enough, Charles Taze Russell worshipped Jesus, he, he believed everybody was going to heaven. He had some very different views than what your average day witness believes today. And if you want, to, you want more on that, write that down as a question. I'll elaborate that on the Q&A. 1914, 1919, 1975, same thing. This is when... Rutherford, the judge, took over from Charles Taze Russell in the early 1900s, around the 1940s. 1940s is when everything started turning. That's where the blood issue, not worshiping Jesus, not celebrating certain holidays, that's where you get the institution of what you see as Jehovah's Witnesses today. And it's actually when they adopted the name. They adopted the name um, Jehovah's Witnesses from the verse. Go back here, I forgot to mention that to you. Was uh, from the verse of Isaiah 43.10 that says, You are my witnesses. That's Isaiah 43.10. That's where that was coined during that time, and that's when this was published. Before that, they used the King James Version Bible. So, you see a lot of changes that happened over the course of their history. Um, but 1975 was an important date. My mother remembers it. I mean, that was her Bible, 1971. The slogan was, stay alive till 75. Armageddon's coming in 75. It's happening. Witnesses sold homes. They pulled kids out of school, pulled them out of college, and they rode around in caravans just waiting for 1975 to get here. This is in 1974. And 75 came and went, and yet another failed prophecy. But why did they stay in? Well, Again, if you ask me that question, I'll, I'll further elaborate on that. And then we get to the point of disfellowshipping or excommunicating of members. Now, I am all for church discipline. That 
If you're acting like a knucklehead in the congregation and you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, your brothers have every right to come to you and say, hey, knock it off. You know better. And do it in love, of course. Brother Sammy has all the right after that to go and counsel you. The Bible even says you're supposed to bring them before the church. Woo, if we did that today, what do you think would happen? Supposed to. It's the way it's... <laughs> I mean, Scripture's pretty clear on it. They take that to the next level. Now, when I left and I exited, when I did this last time, I was emotionally hurt. I was still hurt over it all, but I've had time and, to mature and glean over it and look at it. And I understand their concept of keeping the congregation clean. There's nothing wrong with that. Keeping their congregation safe. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the lengths at which they go to do it. Um, to be disfellowship, you are completely cut off from family, from friends. They will not speak to you. They will not email you. They will not call you. And granted, some places, some, some kingdom halls and in some areas are more strict on this than others. But all in all, across the board, there is a distinction that if you do wrong, they're not going to talk to you. They're not going to interact with you. They're going to push you out. And their reasoning for that is, is that if they exclude the member, they will be overcome with grief that they'll come back. And you know what? It works. Didn't for me. I'm a little, I'm a little hard-headed. I'm a little rebellious. <laughs> but um, I did try for a, a, a minute. I did try to come back when I got dealt with. But I soon realized this is not what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was probably only about 20, 21. The only way of being alleviated from being disfellowshipped or after you've been disfellowshipped is to be active in the kingdom hall and show a repentant attitude in the congregation. And you can be what is called reinstated. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to share a couple quotes, and then Kyle's all right. Brother Sammy, we take a five-minute break, and then I'll, I'll finish up. Um, these quotes here, the first one's re referring to uh, the Catholic Church. No one should be forced to worship in a way that he finds unacceptable or made to choose between his beliefs and his family. And that was out of the Awake 2009, July, page 29. Regarding those disfellowship from Jehovah's Witnesses, Really, what your beloved family member, and I'm sorry, it's just comical to me, just the irony here. Really, what your beloved family member needs to see, <clears throat> excuse me, is your resolute stance to put Jehovah above everything else, including the family bond. Do not look for excuses to associate with a disfellowship family member, for example, through email. See, that's their own words. I didn't make that up. There is an obvious double standard there. They'll look at the Catholic Church and say, well, they shouldn't do that to people. Well, that's what you're, exactly what you're doing to your own. So, a little bit of irony there. Um, let's go ahead and take a quick five-minute break, stretch your legs, get some water. I need to get a drink of water, and then we'll wrap this up and round it out. I'm going to close with a few other topics and questions that's going to segue us into next Sunday. There, I've learned doing this enough. Tension span's only about 30, 45 minutes, and you gotta, you gotta break it up. That's, that's just us impatient humans. But, um, 
So really, uh, moving forward, and if time permits, I will delve into some other stuff, but like I said, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I just wanted to give y'all a basic rundown of what they believe and how they operate, just so you can get a kind of picture in your mind, you know, and understand them a little better. It always helped me, you know, um, <clears throat> I've done studies with this on Mormonism, Islam, you know, it, it fascinates me, those, those, you know, other religions and, and their claims, and I really enjoy studying them and looking into them and what other people believe. Um, I think it's important that we do that, we understand the culture and the things that they believe so we can engage that culture, so that we're able to have those conversations with them and be like the Apostle Paul and build that bridge. You think about it, Acts 17. That is, you ask any apologist um, that studies apologetics and Christian, Christian apologetics, that is the one-all, be-all. That is the classical apologetics argument. You know, origins, design, morality, Jesus and the resurrection, and that you can know God personally. If you read, Act, go back and read Acts 17. Paul was brilliant, brilliant in how he engaged his culture and how... The, or the culture that he was in, and how he met people where they were. He was around a bunch of these statues to the gods, and there was a, a statue that says to the unknown God. He says, I know this God. Let me introduce you to him. And that's how he segued into that culture. And we have to be similar to that. We have to be, you know, as a witness comes in your door and you, you get all this, and I'm going to have printouts tomorrow of what we've covered and to help follow along for next Sunday, what, we're gonna, what I'm about to go into here. But if I can give you enough ammunition that you sit down and you lovingly go through this with a witness that comes to your door and give you the upper hand, I'm going to do that. And Because all in all, this is about not hating on somebody. This is about getting to the truth and loving people. Do we love them enough that we get uncomfortable to share the gospel? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Are we courageous enough to be able to do that? And you have the truth. You have the truth at your disposal. Don't be afraid of that. You know, the Bible, it can defend itself. It doesn't need us to defend it. It can defend itself rightly interpreted. You understand that? Okay. So, um, close with... Um, all these things are really interesting, and I've probably affirmed what you thought about and what you knew about Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I'm going to give a little snippet of next Sunday. It's going to get a little deeper, and I just want to go ahead and tell you that. Be ready. Bring your notes, note-taking gear. Bring everything, you know, to jot down things. Bring your Bibles. We're going we're gonna to delve in a little bit, and we need to do that. We need to be challenged to do that. Um... But really what we just covered doesn't really set them apart from Christians really all that much. Like I said, most of what we, what we just covered there, even a Christian, I actually do know Christians that don't believe in hell. And you're like, wait a minute. Now for me, I don't believe that. I believe in separation from God. I believe there's eternal judgment, eternal separation from God. That was actually one of the big things that led me out of the witnesses because it just is clear in Scripture. But there are denominations that don't believe in a hell. They believe in the same thing that witnesses do, 
that you just die and that is your judgment and that's your eternal punishment. Do I disagree with them on that? Adamantly. But are they still my brothers in Christ? They are because they do accept Jesus as their Savior, that He is God and that He is their, he is the propitiation of their sin. That is how one is saved. There's no other criteria to that. Now, there's a caveat to that. I believe when you become a true follower of Jesus, that those doctrines start falling in line for you. Let me, be, let me, let me give you an example. Like I said on my, on my testimony, I was not a Trinitarian. I did not believe in the Trinity when I got saved. I still fought against it. I still believed a hybrid of what they promoted. What I had to come to grips with was that Jesus is God. When I realized that Jesus was God, and He's the only means of salvation, trusting in Him, that was clear. That's what I did. God Jesus picked me up, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, okay, we got that covered. You understand that. Now, let's work through the rest of this. Now that we got you here, let's get you through the rest. Of, and it was my journey a year or so after I got saved that I started really embracing a Trinitarian view. So, yes, someone could come to Christ and not be a Trinitarian, but I think there's a caveat to that, that you eventually, in your walk, so to speak, or your Christ life, as C.S. Lewis would put it, you eventually come to that conclusion that the Trinity is the best explanation, and it's evident in Scripture. I think it's the, old, the Trinity is in the Old Testament. It's there. It's a little more vague than the New Testament. It's kind of bold with Jesus on the scene and the Holy Spirit coming onto the scene, but it's there in the Old Testament. Um, so that was a hurdle for me. That was a, that was a big mental hurdle for me to get over that the Trinity is true. I mean, surely y'all have probably been told that all your lives, the Trinitarian nature of God. That was, that was a foreign concept to me because learning as a witness, this is their view of the Trinity, that we believe in three separate gods. That's what they think we believe. Is that what we believe? No. I'm going to go ahead and give you a little, I was saving this for next Sunday, but <clears throat> this is how I explain the Trinity. And I, I veer from analogies because, and we were discussing that earlier, and that's just my modus operandi. That I don't, all analogies break down eventually if people want to pick it apart enough. So this is what I offer. And this is somebody that I studied with, and they, they, they revealed this to me, and I think it reveals the Trinitarian nature the best. God is one being, one being, comprised of three persons that are co-eternal, co-equal, yet distinctly different persons. God is one what? What is he? A being. So one what comprised of three who's? Father, Son, and Spirit. I am one being comprised of one person. 
God is one being comprised of three persons. Now, one of the arguments that's been with witnesses is, well, we can't make sense of the Trinity. Just because you make sense of it doesn't mean it ain't true. Now, biblical evidence points to the Trinity being true. And as some philosophers and scholars have argued too, and I, I accept this as well, that for God, 1 John 4, 8, for if God is love, if he is love, that doesn't mean that, you know, he's all mushy and all this. He is literally the standard of love. It's his very essence of who he is. And for, in order for him to be love, there has to be at least two people in the person of God. There has to be the lover and the lovee. Someone to unconditionally love back and it be reciprocated. Because you can't be by yourself and solely love just yourself. Well, we, we, we look kind of down on people that just solely love themselves, you know, and only themselves. So it makes sense that Father, Son, and Spirit all comprise this being of God and that they are co-eternal, co-equal, but yet distinctly different persons who have loved each other forever. They have all been in compatible love with each other for all time. For God is love. Does that make sense? Need me to break that down a little more? Okay. So, God is one what, three who's. And then, um, really number one, the number one thing next week we're going to look at is Jesus being God. I'm going to start peeling back some layers on that. I'm going to start showing you biblically, scripturally, that Jesus is indeed God. I'm going to give you supplement scriptures to show you that. And, again, side note, they worshiped Jesus and believed on Jesus, similar, I mean, just like we do, up to the 1940s. That belief changed over time. Um... And also, I'm going to elaborate into the Holy Spirit as well being God. <clears throat> and then, um, the last and final point is, is how one is saved. Um, the doctrine of how one is saved is called soterology. That is how, you know, again, there, there are several doctrines on how one is saved, um, how one comes to Christ, um, other denominations with, you know, baptismal regeneration and things like that. We're going to simply and exclusively look at what Scripture tells us how one is saved. And there is no getting around it. And I'm going to expose to you what their vision of one being saved and one seeking paradise, what that means. And that's really the kicker. This, that, that question right there, how one is saved, really is the nuts and bolts of it all. If you can show them that faith alone in Christ is how one is saved, and you can dismantle this idea that they have and how one is saved, well, the work's done. That's it. And again, 
We're to do this out of love. We're to do this out of tact. And it's necessary that we do it. Because a Jehovah's Witness is no different than any other lost person. No different. And the only difference is, is that they're coming to you wanting to talk about the Bible. So most of your work's cut out for you. You know, or it's already done for you. Your work that's cut out for you is showing them, hey, either what you say is true or what we're saying is true. So we'll examine those in greater detail. We got a few.